This podcast is a project of the Mass Cultural Council. We believe in the power of culture, the arts, humanities, and sciences to enrich communities, advance equity, and foster creativity. I've always been convinced that science was for everyone, and if you think about it for a minute, it's kind of obvious that it is. I think about medicine, you know, everybody engages with medical science at some points in their lives, and I think one of the things that the Science Festival does is just to make that abundantly clear. Hello, I'm Anita Walker, Executive Director of the Mass Cultural Council, and welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. Our guest today is John Durant, and he is the director of the MIT Museum. Welcome. Thank you very much. Hi. I was trying to remember as I was sitting here, how long have you been running the Cambridge Science Festival? Well, we launched the, the thing as an initiative with an announcement in, I think it was June 2006, and our first festival went live spring 2007. It has experienced amazing <laughs> growth and resonance. Yes, I mean, sometimes you do things in life and you really don't have any sense, of course, how it's going to turn out or what it will lead to. And if you'd asked me back then, you know, how will this be uh, in two, three, five, ten years' time, I really wouldn't have had much idea. Uh, I do remember that our first year, the theory was that we would start small, you know, take steps before you run and all that kind of stuff. But in fact, because of the way we organized the festival, it started pretty large and it was like, wow, look at all this. Um, and it's just been like that ever since, you know. So, yes, so much science to pack into a festival. Well, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so it really has just been like uh, once it started, it was holding on to the tail of the tiger, really. Uh, what was my your intention? What, did you, what, what were you meaning to do? Well, you know, I had newly arrived uh, from the UK uh, to direct the MIT Museum. So I was new to the United States as well as to Cambridge. And I'd been doing science outreach in England for a while, and I s expected the landscape here to be broadly similar. The two countries, you know, they have their differences, but they also have a lot of things in common, including, roughly speaking, the language. And uh, so I expected to see things I was familiar with, and I was familiar with festivals of science and technology actually in Europe, and uh, but there wasn't one in Cambridge, Mass., even though... Cambridge Mass is kind of science city, you know, and there's more science per square foot there, as I sometimes say, than anywhere else I've ever been. But I would ask people in my early months, you know, you're allowed to ask questions when you're a newcomer that you can't ask when you've been around a while. So it was like, well, why isn't there a science festival in this town? And I always got the same answer, which was, what's a science festival? <laughs> And so I would try and explain, and then people, as soon as they got the idea, they'd say, that's a good idea, why don't we do it? What is a science festival? Well, it's the way I, would, I used to put it is, and I still do, is imagine other festivals that you might know, festivals of music or of literature or of art, and then imagine doing that for science and technology. And that's really it. You know, you celebrate in the community, you do lots of special events, uh, you try to bring in outstanding people, um, and you try to really engage the whole community in this effort as much as you realistically can. You know, my aim when I started it actually <laughs> was that if there was anybody living or working in Cambridge who was awake, they ought to be aware that the science festival was going on. That would that seemed to me to be a reasonable criterion, and. Um, uh, so, you know, the reason I started it was in a sense that everybody I spoke to thought it was a good idea. 
And so it seemed to be a gap that needed to be filled. And everybody I spoke to was willing to help, pretty much, including, I'm glad to say, the Massachusetts Cultural Council. <laughs> so I ran out of excuses, really, not to do it. You know, I mean, if everybody wants it and everybody's willing to help, then why not? You know, it's interesting because um, when we think of other festivals, music festival and arts festival, art and music is for everybody. But science, science is for those people in the white coats that are super smart. Is science really for everybody? Have, well, have we sort of changed uh, in terms of our attitudes around science in the last 10 years in your experience? Um, probably. It's been complicated, I think, what's been going on. But I think, of course, my, I've been committed to the to trying to prove what you just said wrong my whole life. So. Uh, I've always been convinced that science was for everyone, and if you think about it for a minute, it's kind of obvious that it is. Uh, you know, everybody's fascinated by new discoveries and inventions, everybody wants the latest gizmos, and at least to begin with, wants to know how they work. Once, once they settle in, nobody cares. I mean, nobody cares anymore how a cell phone works, but back in the day when they didn't work. <laughs> Uh, everybody was fascinated by the idea, you know, when they were kind of bricks that people held up against their ears and shouted in the street. Uh, everybody was fascinated by how you could have a phone without a cable. Um, so I think about medicine, you know, everybody engages with medical science at some points in their lives. You're engaging with science directly. So it really is for everyone. And I think one of the things that a science festival does is just to make that abundantly clear. and lo and behold when you do it people really show up you know people really want to want to get more involved as long as you can convince them that they don't have to be nerds and they don't have to have you know two heads uh, in order to deal with this stuff um, that's the first move uh, and then you're off to the races you know? what I love about festivals in general is that they have the lowest barrier to participation yep. I don't have to walk through the laboratory door. I don't have to cross the proscenium. I can accidentally bump into it on Main Street or... Exactly, and that was precisely our aim from the beginning. In fact, in the first year, I still remember, it seems a long time ago now, we came, <laughs> we came up with this idea of trying to turn the public street into a model of the human genome because an awful lot of the human genome was sequenced in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, so we took the roughly two miles between Kendall Square T-stop and Harvard Square T-stop and we said well what would it be like if we treated that as a model of the genome and you know, there are 23 pairs of chromosomes in our genetic makeup so you need 23 pairs of lampposts roughly the right distance apart along that trajectory and we put big banners up on these and at each pair of lampposts because the chromosomes come in pairs you'd have something up which told you a bit about those chromosomes. You know, you're at chromosome number nine. This is really weird if you think about it. You're standing on the street, but now you're being told you're at chromosome nine. And it would tell you something about what we know is going on on chromosome nine. And I remember the, um, the 23rd pair of chromosomes are the sex chromosomes, the ones that are different in men and women, X and Y. So those turned out to be in Harvard Square. And one of the more bizarre things I remember ever doing in my science outreach career was going along for the May celebration. There's a May Day celebration in Harvard Square each year. They close the streets, they have bands and so on. And, and uh, we had people handing out placards with X's and Y's on them. 
to hundreds of people on the street who were actually there principally, I think, to watch a band of scantily clad women who were singing, I remember. And I was told I had to get on the stage after them. Um, and actually, I still, at that point, I had a two-year-old son with me, and I was on childcare, so he was kind of with me. And I, I, I remember getting up on this stage and thinking, what am I doing now, actually? I'm, I'm getting up after this sort of band who are about half my age, and uh, I've got this youngster on my arm, what's he gonna do? And I have to tell all these people to hold up their placards of X and Y chromosomes while we take a photograph from the rooftops. You know, you do some strange things when you get involved with the science festival, but as you say, it's all about having preferably no bar to entry. So all these folks had to do to get involved that day was to turn up for the May Day celebration. They thought they were there for whatever, um, shopping or music or whatever, but they found themselves celebrating the sex chromosomes. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> they, they couldn't have imagined a better day. So, so here we are. What ten plus years into the program, um, it's 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 got a life of its own. I mean, it's taken off with or without you. I have a feeling, right? I hope so. I mean, really, if you start this kind of thing, honestly, one of my principal objectives is to get it to a point where if I were to bow out it would carry on because it's not so great if everything you try goes until you look away and then falls on its face you know so yes I like to think it's pretty embedded now I think Cambridge would miss it if it didn't happen uh, the city has got very invested and we couldn't do it actually without tremendous civic support you know, every time we put things on lampposts, the police details have to come out and help with that, and we always get them, no charge, no, they never question it. Um, the, the city is very invested in this festival. Um, and it's grown steadily, you know, so we now have uh, certainly more than 50,000 people a year engaging in face-to-face -face events. It's often quite hard to tell because most of the events are free. Many of them are open uh, like our genome trail, as I said, you know, how many people saw that? Well, how could you count, you know? Um, so yeah, it's really become uh, an established thing, and I have a great small but great team who run it each year, and um, it's... And science is fun. Well, it, it is, and it's, it's something that people want to do, and it's not just uh, kids. Everybody knows that kids enjoy science and technology, but it's interesting, about two years in, I can't remember, maybe it was one year in, we decided to stretch, we were a 10-day festival, we decided to stretch a point, and instead of starting on the Saturday, the first Saturday, we thought we'd start the Friday evening with a, an adult event. And, you know, we're competing on a Friday night, basically, if you start an event at 7 or 7.30, you're competing with clubs and movie theaters and other kinds of entertainment. But every year since then, which is now at least 10 years, we've filled a venue, sometimes it's a We've used First Parish in Harvard Square, which is a beautiful Unitarian church. Uh, we even used Sanders Theatre, Harvard's largest um, formal theatre one year. Um, but every year we fill it. This year, I can tell you, we had uh, a science comedy show that evening. We had Eugene Merman. Uh, it was called The Continuing Education of Eugene Merman. What can I tell you? According to Eugene, he really didn't do very well at school. I mean, he did just about as badly as you can do without totally flunking. And got out into the real world, as it were, and discovered that there were lots of things that he didn't know about that actually it would have been quite nice to know about. So we had this wonderful uh, idea of taking a very talented brain scientist and a very talented science journalist and have them come 
and talk on stage to teach this stand-up comedian a bit about how the brain works. And that was the whole evening. And we had a packed house. Uh, it was very funny and it was very informative. And you know, you're right there with a, a, a young adult audience mainly. Um, science is for everybody. So let's talk about the museum. Okay. What's cooking at the museum? Well, the MIT Museum has been around uh, for several decades. It started in the 70s. It's always been in the same buildings. You know, a lot of MIT over the years has been in old industrial buildings that have been repurposed. So my museum has been, for the whole of its life up to this point, in an old radio factory on Massachusetts Avenue. And it, I suppose it was a great radio factory, but it really isn't very suitable for a museum. I mean, it's got low ceilings. Uh, we've made, I think, the best of it, and we, I think, offer a pretty good experience to people, but we're always operating with the constraints of the building. Actually, it's two buildings, and we occupy parts of each, and they're on different levels, so we have ramps, and it's like, this is not the best, you know. So, uh, very fortunately, uh, the Institute has decided to invite the museum to relocate to a new building, uh, over in Kendall Square on the eastern side of the MIT campus, right by the Kendall T-stop where we started the genome trail all those years ago, uh, chromosome one. Um, and uh, there's a hole in the ground right now as I speak which is gradually being, you know, the construction is just starting for this new building. It's a very large building. Uh, we'll be on the first three floors um, right on, the, on Main Street. And we can't wait because it'll be purpose designed space higher ceilings, uh, more ability to do the kinds of things that museums like doing. So that's all in the works. Oh, that's exciting, very exciting. Now, like like all of our other nonprofit museums, you do have to worry about raising money, yeah. corporate <laughs> support and partnerships. Um, talk a little about that, how that's evolved for you since you've been here. Well, it's true. I don't know any nonprofit that doesn't care about raising money to support what it does. Um, well, one thing I would say, I mean, let's talk about the festival for a bit. The real trick to running the festival out of MIT, it's a, it's a big collaboration, so though, though we host it at the MIT Museum, we depend on many other actors coming in. And the way I got support from MIT to do this was MIT said, well, I'll, we'll give you a little bit of money towards the cost of this, but only a little bit, and we expect you to go and raise all the rest. And so I said, okay. And um, it's kind of worked, and the way it's worked has been rather like the festival itself. It's a fairly big tent. The festival is what I call a big tent operation. We welcome any organization that wants to run a, a science event for the community during the festival um, 10 days, and that's how we come to have such a big program, you know, like 175 events or something. Um, we don't organize all of those ourselves, we organize some. Um, but we've also operated a big tent approach to fundraising or funding, which is if we're going to um, raise the money we need to do this, that is a year-round operation really, running a festival on this scale, then we need a whole clutch of supporters. And the people we've turned to, apart from MIT and Harvard, uh, the city of Cambridge has been a loyal supporter, the Massachusetts Cultural Council was an early entrant and uh, was one of the few early funders, like the city of Cambridge, in 
being with us year after year and even assuring us in some cases a couple of years ahead that they would be here next year and that made a big difference at the beginning. So we had a little clutch of early entrants and then it was like, well, where should we go now? And since we're about science and technology in the community, we decided to go to, some, to the science-based companies that are so numerous in Cambridge. And um, a whole clutch of those companies uh, stepped forward. Um, and each year since then, we've had anywhere between 15 and 25 different uh, corporate sponsors at different levels. And what's made it stable is that although individual companies' circumstances change, some come in, some drop out for a year or two, come back, the, the fact that we have such a wide base of support has been uh, a stable thing. And I'm struck as I look back that you know we'd only got going for a couple of years when the financial crisis hit. And everybody was tightening their belts, of course. Um, and it affected us, but we got through that. Um, and so I think we've got a reasonably strong financial model for the festival. Do you think that you're in a unique position being in Cambridge and having a science festival? Because what we hear from so many of our nonprofits is that the corporate support is diminishing. Um, dramatically. Um, it's really individual support where most of the revenue, the contributed income is coming from. Right. It sounds like you might have a special circumstance. Well, that's interesting. When it comes to the MIT Museum, contrasting that now with the festival, it's tr what you just said is true, that a lot of our most significant financial support, uh, especially with respect to the new museum, is coming from individual donors. Uh, we do hope that some of the companies in Cambridge will also step up for the new museum, but we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing without our individual supporters. But in the festival, it's been true the other way. Um, Can relatively, you, you know why? That's interesting. I, I, I'm not sure entirely, except to say that, as I said, our festival, it is, as you say, in a special place. It's in a place that is distinguished by having such a large science base to the economy. You know, the city's enthusiastic about the festival partly because it wants young people growing up in Cambridge to know what kinds of opportunities for them there are in companies in and around the city that are looking for qualified young people to go into their companies. Um, so I think the fact that we are celebrating science and technology in the community, for the community, has attracted numbers of companies who see this as being consistent with their own community relations. Um, we've also been fortunate in having one or two, um, more recently, one or two larger relationships. So we have a, a very strong relationship with an international school system called the uh, called North Anglia, which is represented in Boston by the British International School. And that company has stepped forward and become a um, a really significant supporter for the last few years. So it's a changing a changing situation, but yeah, you have to constantly keep an eye on the fundraising because these things otherwise are in trouble. Just to dig a little deeper into that though, um, since so many of our listeners are thinking every day about where they're gonna raise the next dollar yeah. in order to yeah. keep their organization um, open, but I'm just trying to put together. So you have the Cambridge Festival, which you have established and maintained a significant level of corporate support over the years. Yeah. Then you have another entity 
whose first name is MIT and last name is Museum, right. which is very different than Science Festival. It is. Well, the museum is the institution. I mean, the MIT Museum is a, is a part of MIT. It's wholly owned by MIT. So you're really talking about MIT. So MIT, it, the, the real trick here was that MIT agreed to get its mind around being the host for a, a community festival. I mean, right. that wasn't a done deal. Though I should say, I mean, something we haven't mentioned, since we launched our festival of science, uh, other communities around the country have gotten interested. In the early years, they sent people to see what we were doing, and we hosted lots of people coming from, you know, the West Coast and from North Carolina, all over the place. And so other science festivals have grown up, and we actually have a network now um, of between 50 and 60 community-based science festivals all over North America. Some of those are also hosted by universities. So in North Carolina, it's UNC. Um, uh, in uh, San Francisco, until recently anyway, it's been uh, UCSF, University of mm -hmm. California, San Francisco. So it is a model that seems to work in several places, but not every university is willing to see part of its responsibility being to support a community science festival. MIT took that step, and that's been a great help. So it is important, though, to the Institute that I keep sort of a clear boundary here, so I can't allow the festival to um, drain funds from the museum. That would not help anybody. So we have to try and keep a sort of certain sort of wall between these and say the festival will secure its own funding and the museum, meanwhile, will continue. Um, and as I say, they happen to have slightly different patterns of funding um, over recent times anyway. So we'll see where that, where that goes. But the festival really, in a sense, is the largest outreach program that my museum runs. It's, and I say largest, it's about uh, 10 times as large as anything else we do. So <laughs> uh, that's how I sometimes think of it. Cambridge Science Festival, MIT Museum. Uh, thank you, John Durant, who is the director of the museum and the festival, another one of our creative minds out loud. Thank you very much. To learn more about this episode and to subscribe, visit creativemindsoutloud.org.